This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Julian Siggers, director of the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, also known as the Penn Museum. And we're going to talk to him today about reinventing museums for the 21st century. Julian, welcome. Thank you for joining us today in Knowledge at Wharton. It's my great pleasure. So uh, I, I wonder if we could start with something that I've found quite paradoxical. Mm-hmm. Uh, museums are institutions that, are, that excel at preserving the past. But as a leader, you have to focus on preparing the institution for the future. So how do you, as a leader, how do you ba- manage this balance between the past and the future? Right. What do you think? Well, it's, it's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, as you say, this museum has around a million objects, and it contains the whole past human story from, you know, two million years ago, from the beginnings of the evolution of our species. Um, But really what we do as a museum is we bring that to life and we show the museum goer through our exhibitions, through our permanent galleries and through programming, uh, the relevance of the past to the present. And that's something, that's a sort of a lens that we filter everything through. And you can, you know, you can see it particularly in our new galleries of the ancient Middle East, where we, we look at a, a story that seems to be a very distant one, the first cities. But as you go through this exhibition, you see how, in fact, so much of what we're showing you is relevant to us today as, as city dwellers. So it's that, that ability to connect the past to the present is, is really what we're, we're trying to achieve in so many of the different things that we do. So that's really interesting. So when you think about connecting the legacy of the past to the present, uh, one thing that becomes really important is how you engage with uh, with your audience or audiences. And increasingly, it seems to me that a big challenge that many museums seem to face is how do you connect with younger uh, generations who go beyond sort of the, the cultural elite, uh, uh, but who are, say, millennials or Generation Z or whatever you know acronym you choose to call them. Would you say this is one of the biggest challenges that museums face today? It's certainly one of the big challenges that we face. And, you know, as, uh, as, as you look at what's available to millennials, I mean, there is the marketplace for your time gets bigger and bigger every single year. Um, also, the actual the notion of a museum has has changed. Uh, um, then you know museums are not necessarily automatically considered to be a voice of authority, and so uh, in engaging younger uh, audiences is a really important part of what we do. Uh, but it actually often means we have to change how we work and how we program. Um, it's usually a more consultative process where you're actually asking younger generations, what do you want to get out of a museum experience? So you have to design galleries um, with them in mind. Um, I actually have a great deal of faith in millennials. I mean, they are, they're a very engaged generation and they're looking for content mm-hmm. and they're looking for authenticity. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's really what we do. So, so as you think about how museums are trying to cope with this challenge, what are some of the more innovative strategies that you have found museums practicing in, in engaging with millennials and younger audiences, well, I think, maybe even more diverse audiences? Right. Well, I think the, the key thing to remember here is um, you just can't program for an audience without their involvement. 
And so I think what museums are, uh, are doing increasingly is being more aware of the communities that they want to serve. And that means often partnerships with those communities where they become actively part of the programming process themselves. You're essentially asking them what they would like. And uh, we're about to open a series of galleries uh, that highlight our African collection. And we have um, set up a, um, a steering committee of community members to actually get at what are the issues that you would like to explore in a gallery with content like that. And I think I see that with museums all, all over the world now, that it's no longer here's our content that we've, we've curated for you. It's almost a joint curatorship. But at the same time, you know, museums contain this enormous pool of, of intellectual capital, which we want to give as an act of generosity almost to the people too. So which are uh, some of the more innovative museums in your experience around the world uh, that have figured out ways to overcome the limitations of just of serving people in their immediate region, but using, say, digital strategies to engage more broadly with other audiences? The two that really spring to mind, the Brooklyn Museum, um, has done some amazing work with their digital content. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a whole team of basically content producers, much like yourselves, mm -hmm. and they actually program for um, a level of membership that's purely digital. Mm -hmm. And so they, there's, there's new programming, there are podcasts, there are you know, deep dives into the collection, and I'm, I, I'm, I think they've done an amazing job. The British Museum did an interesting thing. Um, they wanted to be the classroom to the world. And so they put a great deal of their collection online and put on a, a range of teaching resources that are really first rate. And that's one of the things that, that, that we set out to do about um, eight years ago is we have these million objects. Most of them aren't on display. But now we've digitized around 700,000 of those. And we also put all of our contents, lectures, we film them. And we put them on our YouTube channel. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, so we can have uh, a lecture in, you know, one of our lecture halls. It could be on something that's reasonably esoteric, like uh, um, uh, the early cities of, of, of Mesopotamia. And we found that, you know, within a year, that lecture has had you know, 30,000 views from all over the world. And, you know, we get we get contacted by people in Australia who've, who are using their, our content in their classrooms as well as for their own personal edification. So what are some of the lessons you think other museums can learn from some of the strategies you described? Well, um, Mike Condiff, who's the head of our uh, 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 website, his strategy is more is more. Mm. And the more material that you put up, the better. And it just it tends to build on itself. And so I think this idea of like record everything have everything available to everyone everywhere and also make it free. And that's something that I think a lot of museums are realizing. We used to um, you know, charge for f images of our collections. We used to actually not let people take photographs in our gallery. Mm -hmm. But in fact, what you're doing is you're missing this potential advocate uh, to go and post your material on social media, download your images from your website, and use them in ways that you couldn't have even figured out. Um, and it's, it's wonderful marketing and free marketing for, for museums and getting our message out. So as you think about implementing some of these digital strategies, uh, what would you think are some of the biggest obstacles that museums face in trying to implement digital right. transformation? 
It's not easy. And, and, and so uh, any thoughts on what are some of the biggest challenges? Well, a couple of thoughts. I mean, putting material online is, is time-consuming and it's costly, but it really does pay dividends. But it needs um, a concerted focus from the top down to do it. The bigger challenge is actually the digital realm in galleries. And to get back to your earlier point about, you know, how do, how do the younger generations learn? So much of how they learn now is, is through um, a digital interface. Um, and so they expect that to be in the galleries. Um, but the thing about digital technology is it dates very quickly mm-hmm. and it's very expensive. And so you're always trying to find that careful balance with having technology that allows visitors to drill down into the information that they have but that won't become obsolete. I mean, like we can never compete with the, you know, the video game world. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, 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 so that's that's that balance we have to tread. And also, you don't want the digital technology to take away from the integrity of the object that's right in front of you. You don't want it to overwhelm it. Right. Right. Now, in addition to uh, the display, I mean, the, uh, many educational institutions. Uh, are experiencing disruption at three three levels with as a result of g- digital transformation. Uh, one is on the research front. So the secondly, there is the teaching, and thirdly is the the engagement with the public. Mm. Uh, do you see the same thing happening at the museum? And if so, what have what has been what have been some of the things you've done to address these issues? Mm. Well, those three realms are a very interesting one for a museum like ours because at our heart we're a a research and teaching institution. But in many ways, that's what makes us the most interesting. Now, we all live digitally, all of our researchers, um, our students who come and visit us, and the public. And so the the key is, is how do you unite all of these different digital arenas so they're all informing each other? So, for example, you know, in our galleries, I've often said, you know, the most interesting thing about archaeology is archaeologists. Mm. And so we actually update what our field archaeologists have been doing in the field in the galleries. And so the research angle comes through and through to the public. So they know that all of these different um, areas are all sort of working together to sort of cross-fertilize each other. Right. That's great. Now, uh, I was talking the other day to, uh, to a colleague of mine who works with a lot of different companies on their uh, digital strategies. And she was telling me that one of the biggest... Uh, mistakes that she has found people make when they're trying to go, go through this digital transformation journey is that they just hire a chief digital officer and they expect that one person to change everything. Right. Uh, and, and of course, it doesn't work. And then, you know, after some time, the chief digital officer is out and they, 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 they try something else. I was wondering if you have encountered similar thinking at museums uh, around the world and and what do you think might be a good way to implement digital strategies if you don't think this is the right way? Right. Well, many museums have actually employed a chief digital officer. I think the Met is probably the most famous example that we've seen uh, in recent years. And they do sort of think, well, that'll be the silver bullet that will cure everything. Um, I think that there is potential for a chief digital officer for this reason, is they can find ways of uniting the different platforms Mm. that are happening digitally anyway in the museum and bring some sort of order to chaos. 
from the research angle, they, it can often be somebody who can, you know, look at a researcher who say is working in Egypt with a with a uh, the project out there, and he could basically help inform them of digital tools that they didn't really know about. Um, but it's certainly in and of itself not going to solve your problems. But um, I think museums are sort of feeling their way with this one. Um, but it's certainly in the last few years, many museums have, have gone down this route and not always successfully. Great. Now, now you, you've been at the Penn Museum since July 2012, I think. I have. Seems uh, like yesterday. <laughs> and before that, you were at museums in Toronto and in London. Mm. And I was wondering, uh, you know, were there lessons that you learned early on in your career uh, that that were helpful to you in, in, in what you're doing today and what some of those lessons might have been? Well, I think one of the lessons I learned very early on was that the best way to communicate with anybody is with storytelling. Mm. And that really doesn't matter which museum you're in, but that's really, um, that's really at the core of what we do. You're trying to transform somebody's understanding of themselves by stories of the past or whatever your discipline was. Um, I've always known that, in fact, um, nothing is more powerful than actually meeting the people who are doing the research mm. and finding ways to get them out in front is, uh, um, is, is, is paramount. You know, everybody responds to a person. And that is always a challenge for a museum because we're often galleries with nobody in them. Um, there's one thing I've really learned from being at the Penn Museum, though, which I didn't know. I mean, the other museums I've worked at have been very large, um, fairly hierarchical, uh, mostly government funded. Um, so Penn has, is a university environment. And so you have to have a much more um, consultative approach to leadership, uh, which is, of course, the academy's way. And, you know, I mean, initially I thought, well, that'll probably slow things down a bit. But in fact, I think it makes things a lot, a lot more effective. And it's a, it's a part of my own leadership thing that I, that I really, it was great to discover it. Um, and I think it, it leads to more substantive change. And of course, the other big difference is from coming from a, you know, government funded institutions to, to an institution like Penn is, of course, uh, uh, fundraising is a huge part of leadership here. I mean, if you want to do something, um, you know, you have to fundraise for it. And Penn is enormously supportive in that process. Well, I wonder since and you've been at Penn for six years, yep. uh, uh, what has been the biggest leadership challenge you have faced mm. in your time here? Uh, how did you overcome the challenge and what did you learn from it? Well, um, the biggest challenge has been uh, our building transformation project. Mm. So this museum is a really remarkable and unique one. You could never create a museum like the Penn Museum uh, today. Um, and our focus has been teaching and research, but we have collections that some of which are in like every single textbook of, of, of the history of art. I mean, these are incredibly important objects, but we sort of let our um, public spaces go. Um, some of the galleries have been around for 70, 80 years in some cases. And so this was an enormous opportunity and an enormous challenge was to basically redo 44,000 square feet of the, of, the, of the museum. So we embarked through our strategic plan of the largest project we've ever done. But of course, it comes with a fairly hefty price tag of over $100 million. Mm -hmm. So the, our biggest challenge has been, has been um, adopting a fundraising strategy 
that can help us meet our goals. And um, luckily, we're at Penn, uh, which uh, you know, which gets very excited by big ideas. And so we are, you know, we're well over sixty percent of that of that total so far. But that, you know, that is and will always be the the, the heaviest lift that that I have as as a leader here is to is to meet those goals, and we will. Uh, thinking about the future now, uh, how would you like Penn Museum to be positioned for the future, and how would you measure its success? Right. Well, right now. Anybody who's an archaeologist or an art historian, any deals with the ancient world, knows about our museum. Um, when these galleries are reopened and with the marketing campaign that go with it, my gauge of success will be more public-facing. And I would like any visitor to Philadelphia to be very upset if they don't have an opportunity to come to the Penn Museum. It has to be an absolute must-see for coming to Philadelphia and uh, I mean, there are there are sort of obvious ways to measure that success, and one of them would be we we're around two hundred thousand people come and visit us a year, and I'd like to double that. Um, and I think it's eminently possible. I mean, where else in the world outside of Egypt will you be able to see a Egyptian pharaonic palace at full height? It's going to be spectacular. Well, Julian, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. It's been great speaking with it's you. It's been my absolute pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.